Good afternoon or good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and this is a very special lunchtime edition, at least if you're calling in from North America, of Restorative Justice on the Rise, co-sponsored by the Peace Alliance and by some profound support and donations from participants like yourself as well as private foundations. Our mission at Restorative Justice on the Rise, which has been going since 2011, is to provide a platform for conversations, for resources and tools, for insights and stories from people all across the world, including today's guest, who I'm really looking forward to introducing to you. Perhaps you know who he is, but we'll be talking with him in just a moment. Um, I'm really looking forward to this, this conversation today because it does feature someone who has uh, a perspective outside of the North American lens. Um, he's very knowledgeable. And uh, restorative justice on the rise, of course, engages in dialogues with people from all over the world. Uh, a lot of times we mainly have folks on with us given the time this, um, represent North American practices from all across the field, including corrections, law enforcement, restorative practitioners, academics, um, people who have been impacted by crime and conflict. And conflict is something that happens to all of us. And so this um, particular conversation delves into the deeper aspects of how we might implement it in our own individual communal and global lives, um, both systemically and individually. So I encourage you, please, to enjoy your resources at the restorativejusticeontherise.org website. There is a clickable map that at this point is just the North American continent, and it shows programs um, across, across the country, state by state. If you have a program that has not yet been listed and you would like it listed there, it's a free resource for you to do so. All you have to do is click on the form next to the map and submit your information, and we'll make sure that we get it up there for you. Um, for those who are internationally based, we are working on providing a better system so that it's a global representation of programs and resources for people to find easy access and to be able to network with those who are close by to them. We also feature over 140 archives of dialogues over the past five years with people uh, such as Dr. Johan Galtung, um, Theo Gabrielides, who is uh, a colleague of ours from the UK as well, and um, Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow. And more recently, we've spoken with Dr. Dave Ragland of The Truth Telling Project, who's doing some incredible work in communities such as Ferguson to create living room conversations where people have a circle process of sorts. Um, we also have spoken with Maya Shenwar, who is the editor-in-chief of Truth Out and had, uh, has had a very deep experience in being impacted by crime um, and having her sister incarcerated on and off over the last decade. So, um, that and more you can find, and I just want to pinpoint too that next week I'm so delighted to bring back to the conversation the wonderful Kate Pranis 
and Carolyn Boyce Watson, who will be talking about their, their more recent book uh, uh, for restorative practices in schools. Um, I'm just looking forward to that. That will be at our regular time, which is Thursdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Kay and Carolyn will join us on October 8th. That's next Thursday, 5 p.m. Pacific. And if you are not yet on our mailing list, um, make sure to do so by going to the restorativejusticeontherise.org website and click the link to sign up there. It's very easy. We also very much value your information and don't pass it along to others. Finally, I want to make note that here in the United States, we have um, Peace Alliance action teams. I serve as the Restorative Justice Fellow for the Peace Alliance, and I'm delighted to let you know, if you don't already, that there's extraordinary ways to get connected right in the midst of your own community in many cities across the United States. Um, the wonderful Dan Kahn, who is our National Field Director, who happens to also be here with us today in this dialogue, is the director of those action teams and networkings. And they mobilize grassroots advocacy and actions. And you can find out more by going to peacealliance.org. So without further ado, I just would love to quickly um, but deeply introduce Ian Martyr, and also just to make note that this is a live conversation that will be turned into a podcast. So if you have interest in passing along this conversation to people who are not able to make it live, you will be able to do, do so with it in just a few days' time after this dialogue closes. You can do that through iTunes. You can go directly to the website, which is, again, restorativejusticeontherise.org. So feel free to use these resources to the degree that you can and would like to. Today's conversation, again, is co-sponsored by the Peace Alliance. And uh, you are invited, if you would like to, to become a live participant in the dialogue with Ian Martyr, to press 1 on your telephone keypad. So please do so at any time during the conversation with Ian Martyr. And just want to say a few things about Ian. And again, um, we've, Ian and I have been working on getting him on this program for quite some time, for actually quite a few years. <laughs> and he is in evening time right now in Leeds, um, UK. And uh, so thank you so much, Ian, for being with us. And I just want to say a few words about your background before we dive into this great time that we are going to have with you, an informative one, I'm sure. Um, Ian is a criminologist, and he's also a PhD student. He study, he's studying and lecturing in restorative justice at, at the School of Law, University of Leeds in the UK. He was born in Canada, but has spent most of his life in northern England. He has conducted research for a number of organizations, including Restorative Solutions, the Restorative Justice Council, Search for Common Ground, and the United Nations Office of Disarmament Affairs. He is also the founder of the Community of Restorative Researchers, a new research network which aims to enhance communication and collaboration between researchers, practitioners, and policymakers in the field of restorative justice. So with a, a huge warm welcome to you, Ian Martyr, 
Hello, and uh, your sound is just spectacular given that you're all the way across the ocean. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much, Molly. It's an absolute pleasure and a privilege to be with you tonight. Well, it's great to have you, and I wonder if you might just uh, jump off by sharing a bit with us about your own path, Ian, and what, what was important to you, any anecdotes that you might have, inspirations that got you on the path of restorative justice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, as you said, I was born in Canada. I moved to the UK when I was seven. And the place I moved to in the UK, in the Northeast, is, or was, or still is, um, very, very undiverse. And as a result of that, I was um, undoubtedly um, the minority. Um, and I was not... A, you know, attacked on a regular basis for the purpose of, um, for the reason of being from somewhere else, essentially. So, in that sense, I grew up around a lot of conflict. It's quite a poor area. And I guess partly because of that, partly because I grew up in quite a political family. My parents are both um, academics and uh, former, or should I say, current hippies, I guess. And I've always kind of suspected that violence and retaliation were just not the most effective way of doing things. Um, I also grew up reading people like Noam Chomsky, who likes to identify the hypocrisy of the sort of uh, punitive and um, warmongering approach of Western governments in modern times. Um, so, I mean, for that reason, I guess I'm generally drawn towards problem-solving approaches. Um, generally, I am of the view that everyone's needs are equally important and that approaches should aim to satisfy everyone's needs as much as possible, um, and that compassion is important. So, subsequently, I studied social sciences at, in high school here. I studied sociology and politics, and then I studied criminology in undergrad, and during my undergraduate degree, um, in which, obviously, when you study criminal justice, criminology undergrad, you learn about just how um, messed up and uh, uncompassionate and uh, unfocused on problem solving the system can be, um, especially in Anglo-American systems. Um, and in second year, we studied as part of the victimology module, we studied restorative justice. And I was immediately very, very drawn towards it. It seemed like a very good idea. I like the conflict resolution aspects. I like the compassion aspects. I like the redemption aspect, the idea of, you know, giving everyone a chance and the fact that um, it's, it's not necessary and actually not accurate to label someone as good or bad or whatever and just that people tend to act. Um, There's a combination of a number of factors, many of which are contextual. Um, and I thought it was a, a very, very good idea. Subsequently, um, I studied it. For, I did my undergrad thesis on, on the subject. I conducted some research for restorative solutions, did a master's where I also studied a little bit and worked for another couple of organizations in the field. Um, and now I'm, as you say, doing a PhD and lecturing on the subject at the University of Leeds. Mm. I find it so compelling that, that uh, for, you've worked for so many of the organizations that we named a moment ago. and. Um, one of them being the search for common ground. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To me, and I'm sure to many of us that are here today, um, search for common ground was 
quite progressive and and still are in the, in the way that they, I mean, even in their name, in looking for that common ground and looking for a different way of of resolving our conflicts, whether it's, Absolutely. I believe it's post and mid-conflict, isn't it? Um, could, could you tell yeah. us a little bit more about what, what you were up to when you were at SEARCH? Yeah, absolutely. So I was based in their office, um, which has responsibility for the Maghreb region, so Northwest Africa. Um, I was based in Rabat in Morocco. And the research I conducted there um, was for the purpose of uh, thinking about how we might pilot restorative practices in the criminal justice process there. So Search for Common Ground Maghreb, um, run by a guy called Nofal Aboud, who is absolutely fantastic, and I highly recommend looking into their work, because they were already working on a lot of things around increasing the use of alternative dispute resolution in the area, um, it's including civil mediation, but also more conflict resolution style things. And in fact, they had already were working on some very, very interesting projects around conflict resolution in prisons. So eventually, I wrote a research and wrote a paper around um, the possibility of conducting a pilot project on using restorative practices in what in the UK we kind of call it young offenders institutions. So prisons and kind of also like residential and halfway houses for young people. Mm-hmm. Um, now, moving into your current work, mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. ha you have uh, founded an organization called uh, the Community of Restorative Researchers. So why don't we start um, out a little bit more along the present lines now and just t tell us about what you're up to with Community of Restorative Researchers. Why did you find it was important to form that group? And tell us the, the specifics about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, about 18 months ago, I went to the European Forum for Restorative Justice um, biannual conference in Belfast. The European Forum is also a fantastic organization that I highly recommend looking into. They produce a lot of very, very high-quality, um, evidence-based, practical content um, because it's based at the University of Leuven, so they have very, very good researchers working there. Anyway, they also run this thing called the European Forum for Restorative Justice. So I went to the conference, I guess, June 2014, and at the conference, at the AGM, they took the step of um, dissolving the research group, I guess it was, associated with it because there just had been a lack of activity in the recent couple of years. Um, and that made me think about setting something up because um, I had met and w was continuing to meet a lot of uh, people about my age, PhD students, who were very, very keen on collaborating, communicating, and relating information to practice, and dealing with people in other countries, and all of the very positive things that can be done through research networks. So originally, my plan was to set up a research network for PhD students in the UK focusing on restorative justice and restorative practices. However, very, very quickly, um, I was getting emails from people and all working on restorative justice in all different um, occupations all over the world, full-time academics, but also project managers, policymakers, 
um, the practitioners, people working in criminal justice agencies, but with an interest in restorative justice. And I just thought it would be um, useful, and so it is proven, to just open it up to everyone. So now, the way that I would describe it is, as you described earlier, the object of the exercise is to enhance communication and collaboration between people involved in restorative justice and restorative practices in different capacities. Um, I think that ultimately what we're all trying to do is maximize the benefits and minimize the risks of the growing use and development of restorative justice. And for that reason, I think we need an open and critical dialogue in which researchers and practitioners and policymakers um, talk to each other and basically learn how to exchange information and build relationships in a way that is mutually beneficial and is beneficial for the field more broadly. So that was what we were trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, it's been quite successful. Um, we now have pretty big social media um, groups where people are talking all the time and sharing information, which is great. We had our inaugural conference a few months ago, um, which brought together people from all across the UK in different capacities. And there's already been a few good things that have come out of that in terms of organizations offering free practitioner training to researchers, um, organizations trying to get researchers in to look at what they're doing, help them improve practices, action research. Um, we've just got funding to hold another conference here in Leeds in November, at which we will be bringing together researchers and practitioners from different sectors. So schools, housing, um, university, criminal justice, and children's services. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people trying to do a lot of stuff. And a lot of people I've spoken to, they just feel like they're isolated. But mm -hmm. actually, there's people very, very close to them trying to do very similar things. Mm -hmm. so I guess part of what we're trying to do is bring people together like that. There's been a couple of other projects. We've um, done a couple of research projects with the European Forum. For example, a couple of network members and myself conducted a little bit of research on the teaching of restorative justice in universities. That mm -hmm. was about this time last year, maybe a little later. Um, we're just about to enter into quite, hopefully, what will be quite an exciting project with the European Forum and International Institute for Restorative Practices and hopefully some other partners, International Association of Groups of Psychotherapists, um, in which we will be using restorative practices um, as a response to the refugee crisis currently happening in Europe. So we're just working on that right now. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we'll publish something on that in the next couple of weeks. Maybe do a little pilot in Brussels, I think, is the plan in a few weeks from now. Um, so I'll have more information about Excellent. that. Excellent. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's been very, very nice. We got a podcast series. I just published the first one today, actually, um, called Restorative Conversations. You can find that on SoundCloud. Excellent. Um, so yeah, it's been going quite well. That is such a – I'm so – I'm thrilled to hear that, that you've got a podcast going now, too, because you're an extraordinary speaker. You have a great speaking voice, and um, I, I just look forward to helping distribute and tweet out and do more on social media to help get the word out about what you're up to. Oh, um, right. and, and people can find you at Twitter, just simply at Ian Martyr. Is that true? Um, and Ian, Ian Criminology. Okay. All right. I, so, yeah, I don't. I don't use it that much. The community of restorative researchers primarily is active on Facebook, where right. we have a page, one of the pages you can like, and also a group where all the conversations take place. We also have a group on LinkedIn, um, which is just less, slightly less active than Facebook. Mm -hmm. Great. 
Well, I'm, I'm curious and I'm guessing a lot of people are with me on these lines. Um, the European Forum, you've, mm -hmm. been, you've been doing some collaborative work with them. What do you see in as the edges of interest and of need coming from their, their end around restorative practices um, systemically and otherwise? What are, what are they looking to understand and get more of right now? Yeah, they're very, very interesting. As I say, I mean, it's, it's criminologists based at the University of Leuven. Um, there's a large number of them there. I'm actually, I have the privilege of going to spend three months with them in a couple of weeks from now. I'm doing a visiting scholarship there. Um, but they're just actually, so in November they have a conference in Leuven, which is the final conference of the Alternatives Project. Um, and that is basically looking at um, alternatives to punitive criminal justice policies, community-based justice, conflict resolution, all these things across Europe. So one thing that they have absolutely down is collaborations in other European countries. Um, mm -hmm. Germany, Hungary, France, Italy, uh, Eastern Europe. Um, this co the conference that they hold, the alternatives one is going to be very, very good. But if, if people would be interested in going to one, I would highly recommend they go to the, just the European Forum biannual conference mm -hmm. it's every two years. The last one was in June last year in Belfast. The next one is going to be in June next year in Leiden in the Netherlands. And I am really looking forward to that. Um, hopefully I'll be presenting there. But really that is an extremely friendly group of people, um, extremely progressive, extremely interested in testing the boundaries, but also in maximizing safety and effectiveness. So I mean they're not, you know, they're not um, doing this because necessarily because they're ideologically in favor. Um, although I'm sure, you know, obviously a lot of them, and for myself, I'm sure for you as well, you know, it, it does pick a lot of the normative uh, human rights boxes, but also, I mean, they're very interested in effectiveness. Mm -hmm. um, so for that reason, they do a lot of research, but much, much of the research they do is actually focused on um, getting, submit, creating content that is practical. So for example, they have some absolutely fantastic documents. This is all available on their websites on um, initiation, by which I mean um, how to offer it to people, um, and how to offer it to people in a, a safe and fair way, an effective way, and also around using circles, because especially in the UK, we don't use circles that much. We focus more, especially in the criminal justice process, on what they would call the wagga-wagga model, restorative conferencing, um, a quite limited kind of pragmatic approach to restorative practices. So certainly from their perspective, and from mine as well, I think that um, advancing the use of circles would be quite a good move. And as I say, they produce some content in order to uh, help that process along. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting that you sh what you just shared regarding the specifics of the process and, and what is employed. Um, I think I heard you say uh, a conferencing style model, and I think you said wa wagga wagga. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So I mean, that was basically, oh sorry, go ahead. No, just just uh, enlighten us a little bit more on that. Maybe some of us know what that is, but I know that I've never heard that word used or that descriptor. Okay, okay fantastic. Yeah, I mean this leads in quite nicely to what's going on in England and Wales. Great. Because essentially the history there is that there has been, there was in the 70s and 80s some um, victim offender mediation projects, very isolated projects. I think there was one in Coventry and one here in Leeds. And it was essentially just what you would call, what they call in academia, moral entrepreneurs. 
whereby someone has found it and they've liked it and so they push it in their service. Um, one of these moral entrepreneurs was the chief constable of Thames Valley Police Force. Um, it was a guy called Charles Pollard, and Thames Valley is where Oxford is in England. So in England and Wales we have, which is a jurisdiction for criminal justice, so Scotland and Northern Ireland, although part of the UK are separate jurisdictions, in England and Wales we have 43 police forces, each of which operate with a fair amount of autonomy. So in the late 90s, the chief constable of Thames Valley Police Force went to Australia and observed um, police-led restorative conferencing whereby the police officer facilitated a conference using a script and the victim and offender are invited and the communities of care of both are invited and this could be used as a diversion from arrest or from court. So alongside what here they call out-of-court disposals, like a police caution. Um, there's a series of additional ones now, but you can essentially use it as a diversion from arrest or court. So what happened was he basically saw that, liked it, came back to England and thought, I'm going to try and roll this out. And so in the years following the late night, I think it, the study came out in 2002 or 2003. This is available freely on the web. The study is called Proceed with Caution by Carolyn Hoyle, H-O-Y-L-E. So if you're interested, you can find that study. And restorative practices, restorative justice in the English and Welsh criminal justice process continued along that vein for a number of years whereby there were isolated pockets of people doing quite a lot of stuff or at least trying to do quite a lot of stuff. Uh, some probation areas, some prisons, again, a few more police forces. People found it and liked it and tried to roll it out there. Um, and then in recent years, um, there's been a much more of a political consensus around its efficacy. So just in the last five years, we've seen two pieces of legislation, one of which introduced restorative justice at the pre-sentence stage. So now under the Crime and Courts Act 2013, judges and magistrates can defer or adjourn sentencing to allow restorative justice to take place after a guilty plea but prior to sentencing. And the second piece of legislation the next year, the Offender Rehabilitation Act 2014, that gives statutory underpinning to the use of restorative justice by probation um, as part of like a rehabilitative activity. So aside from that, um, one of the things that I'm looking at, so as I say, I mean, there's a number of things going on like that. There's been mm -hmm. other sorry, that I should have mentioned, including the fact that each police force since 2011 or 12, I think it was, they now have a, an elected official called the Police and Crime Commissioner who two years ago was given the responsibility of commissioning, quote, victim services. Mm -hmm. So whereas previously these were given out on a grant basis, we have a national organization called Victim Support, which offers a lot of victim services and other small local organizations as well. And obviously some statutory agencies like probation have victim liaison officers in most areas. Um, but restorative justice, for better or for worse, was designated a victim service. So that meant that they were given some funding to invest directly in it at a local level. And this is what I'm looking at, is the fact that that means, again, remember I said that the forces operate with a lot of autonomy. Well, the police and crime commissioners do so as well. There's 41 mm -hmm. of them because in London, the two London forces don't have them. But the 41 individuals um, are all doing different things. 
there's a number of kind of categories. So there's some places that contract it out. There's some places that have been um, enabling the local government to recruit volunteers to deliver cases. There are some places where the money has gone to criminal justice agencies. For example, there have been a lot of police forces that have trained many of their frontline officers to deliver restorative conferences. Oh, I was just going to ask you about that too. Um, that, that's fantastic to hear that. Um, so what, what you're saying is that in what might be the police academy style here in North America trainings for police, um, there, there is a, an implementation of restorative justice training into whatever training they receive before they come on the force. Absolutely. I mean, it's only a small number of the most progressive forces uh -huh. have actually integrated it in a substantial way into the introductory training. Mm -hmm. But there have been, on top of that, a number of forces which have given all of their existing staff either a one or Additional. three day course mm -hmm. in facilitation. And, and can you rename those forces um, and where we might find out more about that? Because I think that that's something we could learn a lot about from, and I know a lot of us have friends who are in the police force, mm -hmm. um, quite a few police chiefs here in the United States that I personally have spoken to um, are very interested in what's happening around this. So could you just pinpoint those again for us, please? Oh, absolutely. So one of the most progressive forces here is Durham Constabulary. Um, you can find information on the web because their senior people are very, very vocal about their support for restorative justice. And in fact, in Durham, every single person who works for the police force, including all the police officers, the senior people, but also the drivers, the, the statisticians, the cleaners, everyone has been trained in restorative justice. Wow. Other forces that have very interesting approaches include Gloucestershire, where they have a multi-agency partnership whereby restorative justice in the area is coordinated jointly by all of the uh, public sector and third sector organizations involved. Um, other places that do quite interesting stuff include Merseyside, where Liverpool is. They're currently undergoing a project where they're training police officers to offer it in a good way. Um, there's other places, as I've said, where they've been recruiting volunteers. So for example, in Darlington and in Bradford, they have what were formerly called neighborhood justice panels. But now it's called Darlington Restorative Justice Hub and Bradford Restorative Justice Hub. In Darlington, they have 100 very, very well-trained volunteers who um, deliver cases in partners that are referred to them by the police or by public housing or other public sector providers. Um, so there really are a lot of very, very interesting things going on in England and Wales right now, not least as a result of this uh, small but still substantial injection of cash that we've got through the police and crime commissioners. And that money, I think, is running from 2013 to 2016. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of a worry around what's going to happen when that money runs out because, of course, the broader context is austerity, um, all the institutions getting absolutely decimated. The police had cuts of 25% between 2010 and 2015. And to be quite frank, it looks like they're gearing up for another cut of a similar magnitude. Um, you know, all probation has been privatized in the last couple of years. Um, prisons also have lost a huge percentage of staff. Um, all of this is context. So whether or not they're going to give them more money that, um, you know, in order to really embed it in the areas, that's a good question. 
Um, that being said, you know, the capacity is to some extent, it has been built um, by the funding so far. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's difficult because in a way they've done a lot and in a way it's still on a knife edge in a lot of places. And interestingly in Thames Valley, the one I described before, which was the first police force to roll it out, um, the chief constable left and the next, next chief constable wasn't that interested and so it just fell by the wayside. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a bit of a history of, first of all, leadership and active leadership in particular being very, very crucial to it just being developed, but also in terms of embedding, it's difficult to know what, how much infrastructure is actually required that it can handle a significant personnel change without falling away. Mm, mm. I'm going to just uh, stop you just for a moment, Ian, and no welcome, uh, welcome anyone who is just joining us. Welcome. This is Restorative Justice on the Rise. I'm your host, Molly Rowan-Leach, and we are in the middle of an extraordinary conversation today for this special lunchtime edition with Ian Martyr, who is the founder of Community of Restorative Researchers based in Leeds, UK. So um, you can find out more about the community of restorative researchers by going to Facebook where they have an active dialogue group there. Um, as Ian mentioned earlier, he can also be found on Twitter and has a new podcast called Restorative Conversations. So please uh, check out more about all of that. And also, I just really appreciate that Ian has been giving so many resource um, references today in our conversation. And uh, right now, I would like to bring into the fold some questions that have been submitted on the sidebar here um, from a couple participants. Ian, if you would um, like to field a couple of these. And then I'd really like to come back around full circle a little bit more um, from the conversation that we've been having in the last 25 minutes regarding the UK and a bit more about um, ground level specifics and, and even um, some of the aspects of the legislative or stipulative measures that are going on there. So um, let's start out though uh, with a question from Barbara. Thank you Barbara for submitting this question and she asks, is there long term data about efficacy of different restorative justice interventions. What measures of success are used? What time frame is commonly used? Okay, so the most commonly cited study from England and Wales is one that was conducted between 2004 and 2007 by Joanna Shaplin and other of her colleagues from the University of Sheffield. This was a longitudinal study funded by the Home Office um, and this looked specifically at the use of restorative conferencing with serious crimes, medium seriousness. So we're talking about burglary, um, serious violence. We're talking about things that go to the Crown Court. So that's like the 15% most serious offenses. Although I don't think there was a lot of you know, murder and rape and stuff like that. I think it was sort of medium seriousness a lot of burglary, a lot of violence, you know, with, with medium significant injury. And the measures of success they used were, first of all, victim satisfaction, and second of all, reducing reoffending. 
And the study that they found, the, the results they found were 85% victim satisfaction, which my understanding is that if you compare it to uh, victim satisfaction with courts, that tends to hover around the 20 to 45% margin, depending on which study you look at. But I think it was a study by Heather Strang that looked generally at it, and it was somewhere in the 30s. Um, and the second um, measure of success they use, which is reducing reoffending, bear in mind this is serious and persistent offenders. They found that it reduced reoffending by 14%, which is quite significant um, because it was one of the only studies I know of to use a randomized control trial to use um, <clears throat> a control group. So what they did there was they controlled for the fact that if you agree to use restorative justice as an offender, you are probably already more likely to desist from crime than normal than the, the, the population of offenders anyway. So what they did was of the people who agreed to it, they only gave it to half. And on that basis, they found 14% less reoffending. Now, you've got to be careful with some of the other studies on reoffending because there are a number of them that do not control for this variable. And so you can see some studies, I've seen one that say 60% less reoffending or some amount. You've got to think that this is a self-selected group because it's voluntary. So again, if you agree to do it, you're maybe already more likely to desist than those who don't agree to do it. Subsequently, there was another study that, that can be found. Um, I think those studies are available on the web if you were to type in Joanna Chaplin, Restorative Justice, Home Office, um, Study, something like that. There's four reports, one of which on the views of victims, one of which on reoffending, one on implementation. Uh, I can't recall what the fourth one is. Um, that was an evaluation one. Mm -hmm. And there's another study, which I believe is also available on the web, by Lauren Sherman and Heather Strang, who are both criminologists at the University of Cambridge. And that was funded by what's called the Campbell, Campbell Collaboration. And I'm struggling to remember the name of that. That is something like face-to-face uh, -face conferencing. If you were to type in face-to-face -face conferencing, um, Sherman, Strang, 2013, I believe, that's basically a meta-analysis of the studies that were um, that satisfied their fairly stringent criteria in terms of methodology, and they found again that it can be you know in the region of 10 to 20 percent reductions in reoffending. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting about that is that obviously those measures of success are the ones chosen by the system, right? Um, so those are the things that are important to policymakers who do not necessarily operate on the basis of a restorative rationale. So they may be looking at things like efficiency, or those would be the, the sort of measures that other non-restorative interventions would be tested against. What's quite interesting, and I've just learned about this last week, is that the International Institute of Restorative Practices, which I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with, operate in the US a lot, they're currently involved in a number of randomized control trials on the use of restorative justice in schools in the US. And they've helped to develop a number of um, additional measures of success, including um, the extent to which participating in restorative justice allows people or enables people to take initiative in the future, um, the extent to which it gives people a voice in an organizational setting. So I think there's some interesting work to be done around broadening our measures of success. Mm -hmm. um, for example, some of the, some of the um, schemes here 
um, they, uh, they deal with neighborhood disputes. And this could be what they call non-crime incidents. But the police might get 200 calls a year from the same couple of neighbors who are just fighting all the time. So as one of their measures of success would be um, reductions in calls to the police, which is quite a good one to use because um, there was just a study that came out yesterday that showed that 84% of calls that come into the police here are non-crime incidents. And they often they have to respond to this stuff, right? So this takes a lot of time a lot of uh, money, you know, in, in the form of them coming and physically taking the time and doing it. So that's a good one for convincing them. For convincing um, policymakers, it's a useful thing to do. One other measure of success that there was a couple of studies by Angel and colleagues, and another one by Strang and colleagues, I believe, is on the use of is on the impact of restorative justice on post-traumatic stress symptoms among victims, and they found that things like um, the victim being afraid of the offender, the victim being angry, uh, the victim being depressed, other factors similar to this, those also all reduce. Although again, there's interesting methodological things there because you also have to factor in time and the fact that time results in the reduction of these anyway. Sorry, there's just an ice cream truck going on in the background. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's excellent. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so in terms of measures of success, these are the ones that tend to be used. Well, that's uh, a, that, there's some work to be done on that. Well, I just want to thank Barbara for that excellent question, and it definitely goes right to the heart of your knowledge base. And thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. Um, I think what I'd like to know a bit more about is um, if, if there's any other organizations that you wanted to just point out in the UK that we hadn't already covered that you would like to direct people's attention to for whatever reason in their progression and their depth of implementing restorative practices. Oh, and yeah. also talk just a little bit more about the element of um, schools using restorative practices. Where, where are they in the UK at this point? How are things going? Okay. Absolutely. Okay, so Thank you. the first organization I'd like to talk about is one of my former employers actually called the Restorative Justice Council. And that is a membership organization, the members of which are uh, practitioners. Um, but they've also become, as a result of getting um, some good funding from the Ministry of Justice, they're the, essentially the de facto regulator of restorative practices in England and Wales. So they offer individual level accreditation whereby you have to, you know, take some training and then you um, do some cases, you write up the cases, and then you can get accredited as an individual practitioner. They've also recently developed service level accreditation. So you have, um, for example, um, a prison. So for example, Leeds Prison has this service level accreditation known as the Restorative Service Quality Mark. So that means that they had to submit evidence on a number of um, metrics around their use of restorative practices. And they also got visited by independent assessors from the Restorative Justice Council. Um, and subsequently, they have this quality mark, which is just a, an indication of the fact that they do restorative justice um, well, essentially. They also mm -hmm. have a training accreditation. So if you're a, a training provider, you can get your materials and your approach accredited by the Restorative Justice Council. They're engaged in lobbying, they're engaged in research, 
to have a strong role to play in both of these pieces of legislation and in other policy changes in the last couple of years. Um, so they're a very interesting organization. That's the Restorative Justice Council. So you can mm -hmm. look them up online. Mm -hmm. They also do a lot of public awareness campaigning and stuff like that. There's another significant organization in England and Wales called Restorative Solutions. Um, they are probably the biggest training provider in England and Wales in criminal justice. And that's basically all former senior police officers who worked in places who, again, you know, places who early on found it and liked it. And then when the senior people retired, they just decided to continue um, advancing the cause, essentially. So they've developed um, a training scheme for police officers which is very pragmatic insofar as the object of the exercise is to teach police officers how to do it in a way where they can think, they can think, oh, I can just pick this up and do this. This is not something that would be difficult or strange. Or, so that's, they're quite interesting. They're also involved a lot in consultancy. So a lot of the um, local um, coordination and other developments, um, they help places to set their stuff up, set up infrastructure, build capacity, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of other organizations, I mean, the University of Sheffield does a lot of research on restorative justice. There's some great lectures there. Um, Oxford and Cambridge and Leeds, also very, very good. Uh, Hull, Glasgow, a number of the universities in England and Wales have some, and in Scotland and Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is a very interesting one. I can talk a little bit about that in a second because actually restorative justice there operates quite differently to the way it operates in England and Wales. Which is also mm -hmm. In terms of the schools, um, there are a few schools. There's one in Leeds that I know of, and there's one in Hull, and there's one in Wales, um, I think in Swansea. Um, and there's a few places where they have what they call, I guess they call the whole school approach mm -hmm. uh, to having a restorative school. Honestly, my, first of all, um, I'm not that up to date with it. Um, and secondly, I don't think it's taken off in the education system as much as it has in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, but it is something that's on my mind on account of the fact that I was just in Belgium last week taking the IIRP circles um, education training. And obviously they do a lot of school stuff. And so what I'm hoping is that it will be rolled out in schools. Um, I'm hoping that it would be taught as a, a matter of, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, be, I'm hoping that it should be just taught to children mm -hmm. uh, in order to change the culture in the medium and long term. Mm -hmm. I mean, the culture here and in the U.S. and in a lot of places is that we want an outside adjudicator to come in and tell us that we're personally right and the other person is wrong and they should be punished for that. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot of scope to basically get people early teach them a different way of responding to conflict, teach them that, as IRP would say, conflict is neutral, and whether it becomes toxic or useful is, is a matter of interpretation and response. Mm -hmm. I also hope that it starts being used in universities. And actually, um, I've got a meeting next week with some people from my university around using it in departments and also in university security. So hopefully there's going to be a few things happening around that. That was interesting to hear from you on that level of sort of like the, the climate and the receptivity overall in general of the UK and that region. Um, would you say, given that you do have experience in North America as well, that, 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 that they're fairly comparable, that there's a certain level possibly of resistance to 
restorative practices still to to, to restorative mm -hmm. justice until people understand what it truly might be, yeah. and even then? <laughs> yeah, I think so, because I think on one hand, there is something that we share, which is the assumption that punitive responses to crime are natural. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's things um, that we don't necessarily share, certain cultural aspects where the UK and the US are just quite different. Um, I actually was reading something by Joanna Shacklin recently, which was explaining that, um, you know, restorative justice is about talking about your feelings, and maybe in the UK, culturally, there's a bit of an aversion, aversion to that. It's <laughs> quite interesting. Perhaps um, maybe, and I'm totally speculating here, but maybe in the US, the equivalent would be that it's about talking about your feelings in a, in a way that's um, yelling at people, whereas maybe, you know, I would flippantly and speculatively say that perhaps that was a, an, an, an aversion to sort of just from that side, but I mean, I'm not joking there. <laughs> also, I mean, there's also just the fact that the systems in both countries are set up in a way um, that is not particularly conducive to restorative approaches mm -hmm. and are resistant to change in themselves. So, I mean, you've got the people and you've got the systems. And <laughs> so guess, uh, let, let me just stop you for a moment because this is a good point before we get too late in the hour here. I want to go back to another question from a participant and I also um, want to let there be time for you to complete something that you might want to complete that hasn't been put into the you know, conversation today. So that being said, Earlier, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation something about Noam Chomsky um, and his influence on you. And I, and I just wanted to go back to that for a minute on this point because you mentioned um, his focus around the hypocrisy of warmongering and the, you know, just the general pitch of hypocrisy of our mm -hmm. systems. And um, tell, tell us what that, if you would, uh, what that means to you yeah, as I mean, it regards justice. And okay. What I really like about him is that he cuts through the nonsense right. of, his, of the us and them, okay? I guess what I, what I really like about him, if I think about it, is the, the fact that he um, regards scapegoating as patently absurd and, in, and uh, um, detrimental um, in any way. And also he regards, um, as I said, the approach that says there's an us and a them, um, you know, it can be very, very useful if you're trying to push certain agendas that require, um, you know, I guess, uh, or some sort of identity or nationalism or something like that. Um, but ultimately, you know, that stands in the way of um, collaborative, peaceful solutions. And so while, I mean, he doesn't talk about restorative justice, right? But I think he talks about things that are fundamental to our political system and that have seeped into the culture that are, that are some of the reasons why there is a resistance mm -hmm. and some of the reasons why restorative justice could be seen as um, not diametrically opposed to the approach we already have, but as certainly, you know, it requires a change of course. Mm -hmm. in order to head in that direction, I think. Do you have a book or an article that you would like to recommend along those lines from Chomsky yeah, or someone related? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think his book, Failed States, is very, very good. Mm -hmm. I think book, uh, Hegemony or Survival is very good. Uh, Hopes and Prospects. 
um, Interventions, which is a series of essays. These are all very, very good. I think Failed States is a very good one, and mm -hmm. Gemini or Survival is a very good one as well. Mm, great. Thank you. Well, let, let's field a live question. Okay. Um, this, uh, let's see, open up your mic. Dan, welcome. Thanks, Molly. Can you hear me okay? You sound great. Okay, good. Ian, uh, thanks so much for your wonderful work. I'm such a fan of what you're doing. Um, my name is Dan Kahn. As Molly mentioned to me earlier, I'm actually the National Field Director for the Peace Alliance. So what that means is, is we help citizens around the country to organize and advocate for policies that are the kinds of policies that I think you're talking about when you're talking about making restorative practices more available. So um, okay. I have sort of a, a, a two-part question. Um, one, I'm, I'm interested in what the policy landscape sort of is. When, like, what, what would be the leading edge that you would be looking for in either a regional or a national policy change um, to, mm -hmm. for the better? And, and then um, the second part of the question is, um, you, you talked about some of these police departments and some police chiefs um, who are you know, very much embracing restorative practices and are, are putting good use to them. Um, are there forming already the, the kind of alliances uh, among practitioners and advocates and law enforcement folks like these in order to make policy gains, to, to, to push the policy agenda? So that's, that's sort of the two parts of my question. And thanks again. Okay, thanks. Um, so the first question was about um, what would be sort of some ideal policy changes I'd like to see. Well, what's interesting about England and Wales, is the case in other countries as well, is that the justice agencies do operate with quite a lot of autonomy. So they already have, they're already broadly, a lot of them, enabled to do it anyway. Um, then the question becomes, should there be a statutory requirement to do it? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that because obviously um, that might breed resistance or you don't want them doing it um, in a bad way. So it's a difficult one. There have been a couple of very, very positive policy changes here, one of which has been the removing of targets on the police. So previously, the police didn't have any discretion because they, they had to arrest people and charge them because there were targets. But a couple of years ago, they removed those targets. So now they have a lot of discretion, and you can use that to use restorative justice as an alternative if you would like. I think what would be quite useful would be um, funding around a broader approach. So what I would like to see is funding that goes towards reconciliation in communities, um, in places where we know there are conflicts between groups of young people, or different religions, or mistrust or suspicion, I would quite like to see funding made available to tackle that in a restorative way. It would be good to see funding made available, for example, in education. Um, just train, have a national program where all teachers are trained. Um, I think there's no reason not to train everyone. I think there's no reason not to say that everywhere has to have the capacity to deliver it. Um, but then, of course, it's voluntary, so no one has to take it. And remind me of the second question. Uh, the second question was about uh, alliances, basically, among um, right. practitioners, right. advocates, law enforcement. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're working on it, basically. I think the Restorative Justice Council is broadly 
the um, spearhead that is bringing all that together. They do a lot of work with the government, with the Ministry of Justice. Um, and this work can be seen, you know, we've got results already in the last couple of years. We've had some legislation. We've had some funding. I think the real test is going to be um, after what they call the comprehensive spending review this autumn. So we just had a new election in which we had a, um, a, a right-wing majority government who are very, very likely to systematically decimate all institutions as much as they can get away with. So what I'm interested to see is how much restorative justice is going to survive that um, in existing institutions and how much cash there will be available um, to invest further in it. Because as I say, I mean, there's a lot of places in England and Wales where it's doing very well, but it's still on a bit of a nice edge. So, but yes, absolutely. I mean, people, you know, it's, people are really going for it. And in the words of, you know, people from IIRP, it's become, it's a, it's a social movement. So mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Mm. Thank you so much, Dan. Again, that's, yeah, and just again um, to everyone gathered here, uh, that's Dan Kahn, who is the field director of the Peace Alliance, national field director. What that means is um, finding your group locally if you're interested in knowing more about action teams. There's a lot happening, grassroots action, advocacy, um, things that you can do to get involved. doesn't take a lot of time. There's even just brief um, advocacy calls that happen with Dan and teams. And I highly encourage um, you to get connected in that way if you aren't already. More information can be found about those at thepeacealliance.org. That's peacealliance, all one word, dot O-R-G. And also on that note, here in the United States, we are working to support a movement of sorts of networking cross-spectrum um, practitioners, academics, legislators, DAs, off police officers, law enforcement, corrections, and so forth um, towards legislative advocacy and, of course, grassroots action. And we host uh, monthly calls to that end that um, happen usually at the mid of each month. And more information about that can be found at restorativejusticeontherise.org. Ian, I would love to um, invite you to share anything further in closing today um, that we haven't raised yet. And then um, just maybe leave us with something that is uh, a practice that you might have or an action that you would suggest um, each of us take in order to further restorative, um, a restorative lens in our own lives? Mm. I mean, as I, as I mean, I think it should be taught systematically in schools. Um, everyone with kids, call your, the kids' school and ask them to be trained in restorative practices. You know, they should use it as a response to conflict but they should also use it circles for decision-making and engagement and building and maintaining relationships. And, you know, get them early. Let's teach the kids a different way of responding to conflict. Let's use restorative practices for reconciliation between groups who are mistrusting each other and who are in conflict within small areas. Um, let's use it in workplaces. I think it should be used in universities. It can be used in the private sector. I think ultimately what we're looking for is for these kind of principles to be applied to governance more broadly. I'm talking about participatory democracy, um, participatory budgeting. I think all of these things are likely to result in 
a more egalitarian, more progressive approach to policy making and policy implementation than is the case at the minute. Um, we may not have time to talk about too much, but I would say that people should look at Northern Ireland. Um, Northern Ireland, as I said, is a different jurisdiction for the purpose of criminal justice to England and Wales. And they're very interesting because they were obviously had a civil war there for in excess of 100 years. That ended in 1997 officially with the Good Friday Agreement. And following the Good Friday Agreement, um, there was a chance for them to remake their justice process. And so they were, um, they had an opportunity to really go for it. So what they did, among other things, is they created an independent police ombudsman that's far more independent than the one that exists in other um, jurisdictions in the UK or elsewhere in Europe. That's a good example. But on top of that, they use restorative justice as a matter of course in the youth justice system. So for all under 18s who go to court and who have committed an offense for which there is not a mandatory life sentence, which so murder and terrorism, um, for all 18, under 18s who go to court in that situation, it is compulsory to offer restorative justice to them prior to, or as, as a, a part of the court if they plead guilty, right? So the object of the exercise is that if you can have a restorative conference, that outcome agreement can be the sentence. And there's still a layer of accountability there because the judge has to sign off on it, right? So the judge can always say that's not proportionate or that's not taking into account public safety enough or any number of things. But it gives everyone the opportunity to basically try and resolve their stuff uh, collectively in advance. And I think this leads into what I'm really interested in is Nils Christie. He has been probably the biggest influence on me, his writing. So if anyone hasn't come across his work, I highly recommend getting a hold of his article called Conflicts as Property, which is in the British Journal of Criminology. It's behind a paywall. But um, I can send it to Molly, basically, if, he, if she could send it out would be an option. So I have it as a PDF. But his books are very, very good as well, including one called A Suitable Amount of Crime. That's a fantastic book. Mm. And also Limits to Pain. And finally, Crime Control is Industry. I highly recommend looking into Nils Christie and encouraging other people to read him as well. Maybe you have colleagues who are not as uh, restorative as yourselves. You know, just encourage them to think about it. Encourage your local schools to think about it, your local uh, governments, your justice agencies. You know, just get these conversations going. Mm. One last thing, and I know we're a few minutes past the hour. Thank you, everyone, for sticking with us. Ian, what inspires you and keeps you going every day? Oh, oh optimism. <laughs> <laughs> Misplaced as though it may be. You know, mm -hmm. as much as I, you know, I, I guess it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Um, but, you know, I, I'm optimistic. I think that we can, I think ultimately I believe that um, in the goodness of people and mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, it's a lot of this um, negative stuff that happens is contextual. And so if we can change the systems, then we can have a massive impact on behavior and attitudes mm. which are heavily influenced by those systems. I guess kind of linked to like, uh, if, if you ever come across Hannah Arendt, who wrote mm -hmm. a book called The Finality of Evil, in mm -hmm. which she's talking about Eichmann, who was one of the, I don't know if he was chief of staff in the Nazi party, he had some significant executive position in the Nazi party, mm -hmm. but he was just a professional manager, totally regular guy, um, who was not ideologically, you know, in favor of all that stuff. 
Um, but, you know, he just did things because that was his job, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm very interested in that. And I'm very interested in the idea of changing behaviors by changing contexts. Mm-hmm. And so I'm optimistic that if we could do that, it would lead to some pretty positive results. Mm. What a wonderful note to leave us on. Thank you so much, Ian Martyr. Thank you founder. very much, Molly. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Ian's the founder of the the um, community of restorative researchers. Um, check that community out on Facebook, Community of Restorative Researchers. And again, you can find them also on LinkedIn and a bit on Twitter under Ian Martyr Criminologist. So I just want to thank our participants live with us. And if you're tuning into the podcast, thank you for being with us. Pass it along, restorativejusticeontherise.org. Next week, join us as we talk with Kate Pranis and Carolyn Boyce-Watson. That's October 8th at our regularly scheduled time of 5 p.m. Eastern, uh, excuse me, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Good evening and good afternoon. Thank you all again. This is your host, Molly Rowan-Leach. You've been listening to restorative justice on the rise.